All right, if you would all make your ways back to your seats and uh, go ahead and stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 for the scripture reading. We're going to be reading verses 17 through 30. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 30. This is the word of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You may all have you seated. Thank you, Ted. These are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you join me as we pray to him, give thanks to him, and look to him for help before we come to the exposition of his word. Lord Jesus, what a Savior and what a God we have in you. You came not to lower the standards of righteousness. But you came to elevate our standards of righteousness to the standards that are given in God's written word. And that's because you are the true son of God. You are the second person of the Trinity. You are the eternal son and the full radiance and glory of God's goodness and grace. As we consider, Lord Jesus, the words that you just gave us in the Sermon on the Mount, 
we're reminded, Lord Jesus, that like your Father, you do not look on the outside, our external acts, how much money we put in the offering plate, our acts of service. You look in the heart and you see clearly and your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and it exposes to the bone and the marrow and it shows, Lord Jesus, in your time and in your way what truly lies inside. And as we consider these words that you've given us, we confess, Lord Jesus, we have fallen short of your standard of holiness. Many of us, myself included, we've struggled with anger. And we've shown that in our anger, our hearts are not the hearts of goodness and grace. Our hearts are the hearts of murderers. We also confess as we come to you, Lord Jesus, that many times we have not pursued peace quickly in the way in which you prescribe. But in our pride, we have delayed. We confess too, Lord, that our hearts so frequently are filled with impure thoughts. And it's not even the sins of lust and looking at pornography, but it's the very desires in our hearts Desiring and coveting anything that you have said is not to be for us. Lord Jesus, we've fallen short. And we stand condemned as adulterers before you and murderers. And yet, Lord Jesus, in your goodness and grace, you came and you lived a life that we could never live, a life of perfect obedience. And you died on the cross and you shed your blood in our place, the blood of your word, so that we might be forgiven, so that those who, through faith in you and repentance from their sins, might turn and receive mercy and grace and compassion in abundance, and might know what it means to be a child of God, forgiven, cleansed, and made whole, participating and enjoying the peace that comes from above. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this day, speak to us, change us, Lord, with your word, sanctify us and wash us and clean us, and enable us, Lord Jesus, to see the greatness and beauty and the wonder of the cross and the magnitude of your love for us. In your name we pray, amen. We'll return this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, and there's a connection with our sermon last Sunday about the Lord's Supper, because Paul makes the point that the blood of Christ is what draws us near, and he goes into great detail explaining that. But I want to step aside for an illustration for a minute or a moment. If any of you have ever spent any time with watch collectors, it's not uncommon that you will see a seasoned watch collector When he or she discovers a rare or special watch, he or she will open that watch. Well, they're a little bit different than perhaps the watches that we all wear that show our heart rate and how many calories we've burned. But for the fantastically expensive antique watches, those made in Europe and Germany and Switzerland, you will see an antique watch collector when he's found something special. It's not uncommon that he won't just look at the outside, he'll turn it over. He'll take a tiny little screwdriver and open up the back of that watch and he'll look 
inside. And what he's doing is he's trying to catch a glimpse of the watch's real and hidden beauty. He's trying to catch a glimpse of what's referred to as the watch's movement. Because more often than not, this is where the real value and the real beauty and the real wonder of a true watch is. This is where you see the wonder and beauty of the watchmaker's craft. Because this, in the movement, is where one really begins to see what sets apart one timepiece from another. And this is where one sees a watchmaker's commitment to his or her craft. Have they used cheap pieces? Have they substituted in bits and pieces and tiny little screws and tiny little movements and tiny little pieces that they found in other places? Or are they using the best work and the best material with precision and with care to create a work of art that keeps perfect time? Well, this morning as we come to Ephesians 2, we see that this is what the Apostle Paul is doing for the saints in Ephesus. What he's doing is he's talking about peace and the peace of the church and what makes up the church and the peace in a believer's life. But what he's doing, he's, he's taking the back off and he's looking inside and he's showing the saints in Ephesus all the different pieces that make this peace a reality, not only in their lives, but in the local church as well. And this is a piece, as you know, this is a piece that the Apostle Paul knew firsthand. And we look at his life and we see what his life was like before he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. There is no peace. There is no rightness with God. There is no well-being. There is only anger and hate and torment that overflows in his heart and his words and extends to the people around him. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the word of the Lord tells us. And yet we see this amazing and miraculous transition in the Apostle Paul's life after he encounters Jesus on the road of Damascus. And he, he beholds the risen Lord. And his life is never the same after he is a man of God's peace, radically changed, 180 degrees. And it's a peace in every sense of the word. It's a peace in that, yes, he is justified, he's sanctified, he's right with God. But it's also a peace that enables him to sleep well at night, as the psalmist talks about. About those who are able to get a good night's sleep because the Lord sustains them. It's the peace of a man who, despite the fact that he has murder on his past history and track record, he's able to sleep at night knowing that he is forgiven completely. And we see this in Paul's epistles and his ministry. He is placed in prison. He is whipped. He is beaten. He has all manner of people inside the church and outside of the church trying to destroy him and his work. And yet here is a man who is able to have joy. Here is a man who lives without fear, or at least the fear of men. Here is a man who is able to boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. Here is a man who is able to enjoy the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the love of the saints. Here is a man who has a peace that doesn't come from this earth. 
He's very much filled with the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, self-control, and gentleness. Paul knew peace firsthand. And he knew it by his experience, but first and foremost from the word of the Lord. And so what he's doing as he writes to the saints in Ephesus, he's sharing with them this same peace that I have that's come from the cross, that's come from Christ. Well, this is your peace too. This is what has made your church a possibility and a reality. And you might not have matured into it fully, and you might not appreciate it fully, but I'm going to take the time and show you how this peace works. The inner movement, the hidden beauty and the wonder of it. And as he shows them the hidden beauty and wonder, where he takes them to is the blood of Christ and the cross. And he draws this connection and he makes a point. In order to appreciate the peace that God has given you, you need to appreciate the beauty and the wonder of the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins, the blood that was shed and given for the redemption of your life, the blood that was given in obedience to God's written word. And this, Paul points out in Ephesians 2, this is what sets apart the peace of Christ, the peace of the local church, the peace of God, the peace of the church universal. This is what sets apart the peace of a believer in the midst of the storm from the peace of this fallen world. They're distinctly different. And what makes them different is what's inside. And what's inside is the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ that comes from Christ's obedience to the written word of his Father. The Apostle Paul draws those connections and he does it for a reason. His desire is that they would know the peace of God to the fullest, that they would live it to the fullest, that they would appreciate and have joy and thankfulness in their life, even in the midst of the storm, that their lives would reflect the life of their Father, of His Son, and His Holy Spirit. This is what the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians 2, and we will read verses 8 through 16, but our focus this morning will be on verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making 
peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the word of the Lord. If you look at verse, let's see, 14 through 16, this is a very typical Paul phrase. It's one huge long sentence. It's very typical with Paul when he's writing. He's taken and inspired by the Spirit and his heart is overflowing and he has much to share. And So you get these really long sentences. But as you look at that sentence, you see it begins with Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And it ends in verse 16 with the cross which kills the hostility. The hostility that divides. And it's with these God-breathed words, the Apostle Paul is showing the saints in Ephesus and us that it's only by Christ's blood, what we sang this morning, it is only by the work of Christ on the cross that sinners are drawn near to a holy God. And that is because it's only through the cross that Christ has killed the hostility between God and men that arises from our pride and our sin and our sinfulness. Sin divides. Sin brings with it hostility. And repeatedly from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end to Revelation, what's repeated over and over again is there's no cheap way out. There's no coupon. There's no discount. Life for life. The blood of God's word is the blood of God's life. And that is the only thing that can pay and atone for our sin and our sinfulness. Now we dodge that a little bit because we like to minimize our sin. It's a mistake. It's an accident. It's no big deal. But when we do that, brothers and sisters, we diminish the greatness of God's love and what he's done for you. And we also diminish the greatness of his word that has promised a plan of salvation that saves the worst and the chief among sinners like the Apostle Paul. And so this brings us to our first point this morning. Christ alone makes peace through his cross alone. Christ alone makes peace through his cross alone. Now, if any of you have been raised in the church, this sounds obvious. This is a no-brainer. Yeah, well, of course. We can't be a Christian without the cross. You can't be right without, with God without the cross. But brothers and sisters, how often do we search for peace? And how often do we try to make peace apart from Christ and apart from His cross? How often do we labor in vain under the lie That there is something we can say or do apart from Christ, apart from His Word, and apart from His cross that will bring peace either to us or to those we love. I have to say to you myself, my confession, all too often, all too often I feel that there's a word that I can say that will pacify my sons and take away their anxiety or concerns. That there's a word that I can say that will make my wife's life easier or better. That there's a word that I can say that can make things right in the church. But that's a lie, brothers and sisters. 
Because my word isn't worth a lick. My word can't cover your sin. My word can't give you absolution or forgiveness. I am no Catholic priest. My word can't make the wrong things in your life right. It is only Christ. It is only his word. And it is only his blood that can do that. And brothers and sisters, I say this because to some degree, this is one of the reasons why I believe we struggle with so much discontent and worry and anxiety and fear. It's because as the song says, you know, we, we, we fail to come to Jesus. We fail to come to the cross. We think somehow we can tackle our, our problems until we're ground down to a nub. And God in his grace many times will let us get there and he'll be kind and gracious to show us the end of our misery so that we realize how much he loves us and how big our, our sin really is. In every way, we, we just try and minimize the problem and we try and minimize our sin. The good news of the gospel is God does not abandon us. He gives us his son and he gives us his word. And this is what Paul is writing about. Because according to God's word, there is peace. There is freedom from the ugliness and sin of this world. But it's a peace that comes, brothers and sisters, by way of the cross. And I think sometimes that's why we balk at that path and see if there's any other path like Peter that we can find apart from the path of the cross in order to solve our problems. And somehow the cross many times becomes the last resort rather than the first resort. And we see this, brothers and sisters, come up in our churches, our homes, our marriages, and our relationships when we see the same conflicts and the same rubs that come up over and over and over and over again. And we ask, why is the same thing coming up over and over again? Well, many times it's because the cross is our last resort and the blood of Christ is the last resort. And as we will see this morning, the word of God is our last resort rather than our first. Well, in verses 13 through 15, the apostle Paul shows us, and he's showing the saints in Ephesus in great detail, why there can be no true peace without Christ and without his blood and without his cross. And it's because, very simply, and what Paul shows us is that Christ through the cross has done what you and I could never do. Through the cross and through his blood, Christ has addressed the heart of our problem. He's addressed our sin. This is what he says, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. By what? Amazing biblical counseling. Great sermons on Sunday. Amazing midweek Bible studies. Great service. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. 
Well, here very specifically, the Apostle Paul shows us that Christ has done something we couldn't do. And here very specifically, he shows us what the blood of Christ does. It removes the dividing wall of hostility, and it does so by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, I know for many of you, what I've just read sounds like science fiction. Well, what does that really mean? And I want to stop here for a moment and ask you, is there anything confusing or disturbing in what I just read? And if I left it at that, would there be many of you who would come and say, Pastor Mark, there's a problem here. Anyone paying close attention to these words and the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 that we read earlier would note that there's an apparent contradiction And it centers around the English word abolish. Let me see if I'm in the right spot. Yes, I am. The Apostle Paul, our English standard version, translates what he wrote in the Greek, and it says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. But our ESV translation of Matthew 5.17 cites Jesus as saying, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What exactly is going on here? Jesus seems to be telling his disciples in Matthew 5, 17, he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. But then the apostle Paul seems to be telling the saints in Ephesus, in fact, Jesus' blood made peace for us by doing just that, by abolishing the law. Are you bored yet? If you didn't care, you should. You should be jumping up and down. You should be coming to your pastor and saying, Pastor Mark, or going to Peter and Ted, there's a contradiction here. What's going on? Is the Apostle Paul here contradicting Jesus? Well, many modern New Testament scholars would say, yes, absolutely. The Apostle Paul is indeed deviating from Jesus' teaching. And like the Apostles' teaching, not just the Apostle Paul, all they're doing is they are reinventing Jesus' words and his teaching for their own purposes to start the church and Christianity. That the church and Christianity, they're just Paul, the Apostle Paul's work. There was this historical man named Jesus. He was a guru. He was a teacher. He said many wise words. They got together. They formed a following. He died. And, oh, they were sad that he died. But they said, we have his teachings and his words. And they put them together. And that's how you got your New Testament, allegedly. And they took it to the next level. Jesus, OS 1.0, On the other hand, you have many evangelical Christians who suggest that this is simply one of several small inconsistencies in your Bible. A book whose message, big picture, is true, The gospel true, even though it is filled with many small inconsistencies, errors, contradictions, and unscientific mistakes. And those who believe that are not few. There are many, and they fill our seminaries. 
And the reason they make this statement, and if you haven't thought about it, it's because many times we haven't cared to look, okay? The reason they make this statement, that the message is true, that there are just all these inconsistencies and errors there, they suggest that the Bible's message is originally from God. The gospel is originally from God, but the written documents, the scriptures, the graphes, are the handiwork of good but imperfect and unscientific men. What can you expect from disciples who were fishermen? What can you expect from this collation and this editing and gathering together from all of these different sources? And the general advice that's given from our Sunday schools through our youth groups and through our seminaries is don't get caught up in the minor details. Don't get caught up in the inconsistencies. See the big picture for what it is. Don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. It's the message and the teaching of the gospel that really matters. That's what your salvation is built upon. That's your ticket to heaven. But brothers and sisters, as we come to the words of the Apostle Paul in these verses, contrary to such assertions, both on the one hand that the Apostle Paul is just doing his own thing and developing his own theology, and on the other hand that the Bible is filled with small and minor inconsistencies and contradictions, but it's, it's, it's got it right for the most part in the big picture. Contrary to both of these assertions, as you come to the Apostle Paul's words here, very, very clearly in verses 14 through 16, the point the Apostle Paul is making here to the saints in Ephesus is that when it comes to the church, when it comes to their salvation, when it comes to the peace of Christ, when it comes to the blood of Christ, whether we understand these things fully or not, the details matter. The tiniest details matter. They matter to God. They matter to us. And this is why the Apostle Paul devotes so much time to the details of our faith and the details of the gospel and the details of the cross. Consider this letter for a minute. The Apostle Paul is writing to Gentile, those who were Gentiles who were saved. They did not have access like you do to electronic copies of the Bible. Their understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament probably was limited to what they'd heard from the apostles or what they'd been taught by their Jewish friends or Jewish believers. To have a manuscript of this size in your home, the cost would have been astronomical and out of reach for the vast majority of people who gathered together. Paul sent a letter. One person would get the letter. They would read it at church, and then that letter would be passed, and someone in that church would make copies, and those letters would be passed from church to church. Their knowledge of the details of the Old Testament written word and their knowledge of theology was probably limited. But that did not stop the Apostle Paul from writing about these things in great detail. And I say that, brothers and sisters, because we need to consider our paradigm for dumbing things down or leaving things out or not paying attention to detail. 
The Apostle Paul did not do it, Jesus didn't do it, and God certainly doesn't do it. And I make this statement because for Paul, our salvation matters. And so the details of God's word matter. And I say this because I believe one of the reasons many professing Christians never know the true joy and peace of their faith is that they have ignored the details of God's written word about their salvation and their faith. And we say, what a contrast, brothers and sisters, in our lives to the attention to detail we make to our finances, to our health, to our sports. There are those of us out there who can cite the stats of any number of NBA players or football players in our fantasy football lists and basketball lists. And I'm not criticizing you men who do fantasy football, okay? Enjoy yourself and do it to the glory of God. But when we look at the attention to detail, brothers and sisters, that we pay to these things that will not last. And then when we come to the things of the faith, our salvation, where life and death are at stake, and we say the details don't matter. Brothers and sisters, woe to us as we think about those things. You would never walk into a hospital that did not pay attention to the details of their protocols for sanitation and sterilization to make sure that everything in that hospital was germ-free, right? How much more so should we have that heart and that attitude for the things of God, our salvation, our faith, the gospel, and God's written word? And that, I believe, is one of the points that the Apostle Paul is making here. And the point that the Apostle Paul repeatedly makes is that the details of the cross matter because the peace of the cross is not the peace of men. It's the peace of God's word. And because the blood of Christ is not the blood of just any man. The blood of Christ is the blood of God's word. And the reason we struggle with passages like these, brothers and sisters, is not because there is error or inconsistencies in God or his word. It's because there is error in our fallen hearts and our fallen minds and our fallen understanding of God's word. And it's because we really need a savior who died on the cross to come and help us. And this brings us to our second point this morning. The blood of the cross is the blood of God's word. The blood of the cross is the blood of God's word. It's what Peter drew our attention to this morning as he went back to Genesis 14. These things about the blood of Christ that Paul's talking about, he's not just pulling it out of the air. When in verse 15, the apostle Paul writes that Christ made peace by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the Apostle Paul is drawing a direct line for the saints in Ephesus. He's drawing a direct line between the cross and a very specific, detailed portion of God's written word. The written commandments of what we refer to as the Mosaic Covenant, or the covenant that God gave the children of Israel at Sinai. 
And the Apostle Paul is showing them and us how to rightly understand the cross, that you can't understand the cross and you can't understand Christ's blood unless you rightly understand God's written word. If you don't understand his written word, you're not going to get this at all and you're going to walk away confused. We must rightly understand the cross and the blood of Christ if we're going to understand Christ's peace and our salvation. But we cannot rightly understand what Christ has accomplished by shedding his blood on the cross without rightly understanding God's written word. And this is because, brothers and sisters, the good news of Jesus Christ by God's design is the good news of God's word. It's the good news of God. It's the good news of God's written word, the Bible. And you can't step away from his word without stepping away from God's salvation and God's son. And many brothers and sisters in the church and outside of the church have tried to do this repeatedly. Outside of the church, Mahatma Gandhi, allegedly inside the church, Martin Luther King, and many others in the entire spectrum who have come to the Sermon on the Mount or who've come to these things and taken principles that they think are beneficial for society. And yet what they do, and you might even argue that Gandhi and Martin Luther King did a better job at keeping the Sermon on the Mount than many evangelical Christians. Well, shame on us. But over time, what you see Just look at India and see what peace lies there. Just look at how black lives are handled in America today and see how lasting was the peace of I have a dream. And that's not to belittle what Martin Luther King was trying to do. I'm just saying it's not a peace that has transformed or lasted. Because what happens, brothers and sisters, when you separate the cross and the blood of Christ from the written word of God, What you lose is you lose Christ himself. And when you lose Christ, you are left with nothing but a social gospel that has no power and no lasting value and no true peace. You just have to look at the history books of America to see that that's being borne out even in our day and age. And why is this the case? It's because the blood of the cross is the blood of God's word. Am I belaboring a point? Yes, 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 I am. Okay? And I do it because we seem to separate the two, and I believe that's the reason many of us struggle, myself included. We have hard challenges in our lives, we suffer. We deal with difficult challenges and we go to God and say, why, why, why? I go to church, I serve, I prayed, I asked for you to release me from this. And we can't make sense of it and we grow bitter and discontent. Why don't I have a spouse? Why don't I have a girlfriend? Why don't I have a job? Why don't I have children? Why isn't the church A, B, C, D, and E? Why am I being treated this way in the local church? And then we open up God's Bible and we open up his written word and it's there. 
Brothers and sisters, it's there in black and white. At the heart of what the life that Christ has given us is the cross. He shared with us not only his life, but his death. And the joy and beauty of being a Christian is sharing the life of Christ. The life of this written word. We ignore God's written word. We ignore the details. And we wonder why there's confusion. And so what I'm going to do Brothers and sisters, you're forewarned. This is a little bit of a detour. It's not a bait and switch. It's a detour. Because I'm going to spend the remainder of this morning, but also next week, looking at how God calls us to understand His written Word. And the reason I want to do this is because I think it pleases the Lord, and He calls us to do this. And I think this is the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. You can't understand the cross without understanding the written word of God. And you can't understand the written word of God unless you're receiving it rightly. The reason I want to devote our time to this is so that we can understand the atonement and the salvation that God has given us. And to do that, we need to step back and wide-angle it and take a moment to consider first, are we rightly understanding God's written word? My hope is at the end of this that you will see that Matthew 5 and Ephesians 2, when rightly received as God's written word, they don't contradict, they complement. And they enrich our understanding of what Christ has done for us. And they stir our hearts together for a far deeper love for our Savior than we had before. And that's, that's my desire and that's my intent. Well, where do we begin So all of this has been introduction, but I won't keep you long this morning. Where do we begin in order to rightly understand God's written word so that we can rightly understand Christ's blood and his cross? We begin not with our fallen understanding or opinion of God and his word. We must begin with God himself. We are to rightly understand his word. We must understand God himself, the person of God. Brothers and sisters, you know this firsthand. You've been there firsthand. If any of you have ever had any disagreements in your marriage, have any of you ever had any disagreements in your marriage? No, all perfection out there in harmony, in peace and harmony. You know the hurt and the discouragement that comes many times with those disagreements, and sometimes we chalk them up as misunderstandings. But at the end of the day, the heart in those situations, many times as we have not just misunderstood the words, we have misunderstood the heart and the person who God has brought closest into our lives. And there's a need to step back sometimes to understand the person rather than our understanding and hearing. And this brings us to, I believe, our final point for this morning. The God of the Bible does not contradict himself because he is holy. The God of the Bible does not contradict himself because he is holy. Brothers and sisters, this is many times what we forget when we read God's word. We forget the God who authored it. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, the repeated testimony of God's word about himself is that he is holy. Leviticus 11.44, 1 Peter 1.16, I am holy. And we've dealt with this many times in our sermons, right? The God of the Bible is eternal. He is sovereign. He is without sin. He is without error. He is without imperfection. He is without inconsistencies. 
in his character, in his work, and in his word. And practically, this means, brothers and sisters, that God does not lie. He does not contradict himself. He does not stutter or slur his speech. And he does not make errors. To the contrary, the God of the Bible is a God who speaks the truth in love. And from Genesis to Revelation, the testimony of this holy God is that he has chosen to reveal himself and his love with us through his word. He has chosen to share his holy love with his creation through his word. He has chosen to draw us near to him through his word. He is not the God who is far away. He is the God who speaks. And because of that, he's a God who cares about his word. God does not lie. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Every word of God proves true. Or in the NASB translation, pure or refined. And that means without error, incorruptible. Incorruptible. When Jesus comes and says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. He's not just saying there's no error here. He's saying something far greater. He's saying my word is incorruptible. It cannot be destroyed. It will stand and be proven to be true for all ages. 2 Samuel 7.28, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are what? Lies, inconsistencies, partial truths. It's truth. Hebrew word, emet, New Testament word, amen, 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 I say. Verily I say, truly I say. It's basically saying, God, I'm testifying your character's at stake here. You're not a God who lies. You speak the truth. And brothers and sisters, I want you to see that truth is tied to his love. It's why we as Christians have such hope. It's why the Apostle Paul had such hope even while he's under house arrest. Because he knows God's promises are true and things are tough now, but God is going to do what he says he's going to do. He didn't make a mistake. For the children of God, this should be the source of great encouragement, hope, and faith. This is what gives us sleep at night. That author who wrote the lyrics to the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, and he talks about peace on earth. And his son was missing, and his son had been shot, and he saw the Civil War, and he saw Americans tearing each other apart. And you hear and read the lyrics of that song. What is it that gives him hope at the end as his heart is breaking, and he doesn't know whether his son has been killed by another American? It's the promise of God's word that God does not lie. Weeping lasts for the evening, but joy comes in the morning. And for the believer, my feelings can betray me. My understanding can betray me. My intellectual abilities can betray me. Brothers and sisters, they're going to betray me. Alzheimer's, whatever it is, wherever I end up. What's the hope and good news? Yeah, my mind may fail. It doesn't matter. God's word will never fail, and he is the one who holds my soul in the palm of his hand, and nothing can separate me from the love of God. What a hope that is. And what a source, though, too, brothers and sisters, of great accountability. 
of faith and faithfulness in the words and deeds. And so we see as God calls for leaders in his church, what does he call them to be? Liars and men who contradict themselves? No, we see this on a regular basis. The criteria for pastors, elders, and deacons is that they speak the truth in love. That their yeas be yea. That believers, when we make a promise, we're going to do it. And we say it and we deliver on our goods. And one of the things that's highlighted there that is not in keeping with a godly man is a term that's referred to as doublespeak. Doublespeak, it's an English translation. It means you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. I come to you and say, oh yeah, I'm doing one thing. And I come to someone else and say, no, I'm doing another. And it's condemned in the scripture because it's uncharacteristic of a, a man who is filled with the spirit of God and who is like Christ. You're saying your example is contrary to the Spirit of Christ because Christ, the Son of God, is a God of truth. He does not lie. He does not slur his speech. He does not speak in double speak. So we see from Genesis to Revelation, the testimony of this holy God is not only does he reveal himself and his love through the holy words he speaks, but here's something interesting. At least it's interesting to me. We'll see if it's interesting to you. God shares his love through the words he writes. God himself is a writer. And the reason we write is because we are made in the image of God. Exodus 31.18. And he, see if I have this, okay? And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Exodus 32.15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God. So here the author's connecting the work of God, the writing of God, okay? God's written word is his work. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God. Engraved on the tablets, God himself has written down his holy word, and he's recorded it for our instruction. Then we go to the psalmist, Psalm 139.16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written. In your book were written. Not my book. Your book were written. Every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Brothers and sisters, we, we give this verse of biblical counseling to people who are struggling and having a hard time, where their life seems out of control, where their circumstances are just way out of control, and the propensity of our heart is anxiety, and you bring a, a saint and say, look, there's hope. Every day in your life has been written in God's book. God saw your unformed substance before you were even conceived in your parents' womb. The Lord knew your days, and your days were written in his book. And the psalmist will go on and talk about every tear he has shed has been kept in God's bottle. 
We have a God who loves us and who cares for us and who's intimately aware with every tiny movement in our life, the smallest and tiniest detail, and He has recorded it in His book. And then when we come to the end, Revelation 20.12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Hopefully this is an encouragement to my wife where our house is littered with books. Then another book was opened. I'm just a, a bad reflection of, of heaven. And the dead were judged. The, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Revelation 20.15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, God keeps records. God writes things down. It's the work of the Lord. And why does he do it? He does it in love. His words are holy. He speaks the truth in love. And he provides written accounts for his people to preserve his word, because his word is holy and special. It's an act of care and love to preserve those accounts. And he does so to hold us, brothers and sisters, accountable to his holy love. When I got engaged to Julie, maybe when she got engaged to me, it was, in many ways, a chaotic experience, but the two things that were not chaotic in that experience was a ring that I gave her, but also a letter. And I wrote, as I typically do with many words, not few, because that's me, with many words on these multiple pages, okay? All the details of how the Lord had brought us together and why I loved her. Why did I do that? Because I wanted her to have a written record of what the Lord had done in our lives at that moment as a miracle of God to bring our hearts together so that years later she could look back on that and read that. But I also wrote that down for another reason. Because I wanted to be held accountable too. That it's not times of change, circumstances have changed, you've changed, things have changed. No. A written record where the details matter not only to convey love to encourage, but to hold us accountable too. And guess what? We see from God and His Word that He is holy, His words are holy, and His written words are holy. What's the point here? Brothers and sisters, God doesn't mess around with His Word. His Word is His work. He cares about it. He cares about it deeply. Now, next week, we will look at God's written word with Jesus Christ, God's written word with the Apostle Paul, and God's written word in the inspiration of Scripture. And Lord willing, we'll be able to draw a direct connection between the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ and the written words that you and I have and that we read in our Bible. But where does this bring us? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know it by heart. It's a word that we give with people who are struggling with anxiety or struggling with troubles in their lives. Trust in the Lord with what? 
all your heart. Lean on your own understanding. Right? No, come on, start throwing things and say heretic. No, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And here the author of Proverbs comes out directly and says, look, if you're going to trust in your own understanding, your way is going to be crooked. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to understand all of the Word of God. Did I say that? Well, you probably can't because you're not smart enough. He's our holy creator. We're sinful, we're fallen. He sees in whole, we see in part. We're the creatures. He will allow you to understand much of it. But you do need to trust all of it. And there's a big distinction. In our home and in our family, Julie and I many times have to give commands or instructions which our sons do not understand. It doesn't matter that they don't understand them completely. In fact, some of the instructions we give, they may not understand till they are 29 or 30, if we're lucky. That doesn't change the fact that those instructions and commands have been given in love to protect our children. And it doesn't change the reality that our sons need to learn how to obey those commands, whether they understand them or not, whether they make sense or not. Now, that doesn't stop our sons coming to us and saying, look, I don't understand, Dad, what you're saying. This doesn't make sense to me. Are you sure you've got it right? Because I'm a fallen human creature as well. But there are come times and moments where I've told my sons. Hey, we don't have time for a lengthy explanation. When that truck is coming across the street, you need to do what I'm saying. And I'll explain to you after. And brothers and sisters, when we get to heaven, maybe the Lord is going to explain a few things that didn't quite make sense to us down here. But you have to ask yourself, are you the God or are you the creature? My old professor, Dr. Harris, who's now struggling with Huntington's Korea and struggles to type, the godly and gracious man, he was the one who pointed out to us in our class as we come to God's word, we have a question. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Are we standing over God's word as experts and as scoffers, and as critics? And are we treating God's word the way we treat a science journal, or a history textbook, or all the ways you study for your exams? The words of men. Or are we disciples and Christians who come to the Lord as little children, who trust in Him with all our hearts and lean not under on our own understandings? Are we coming under His word? under its authority, under its holiness. But brothers and sisters, as we yawn, his love. Does every word matter? Brothers and sisters, it matters to God. And because of that, we have a cross, and we have Christ's blood, and we have his peace. Where will you stand? Above the word of the Lord, pridefully, as an expert or a scoffer, or will you come under it? 
We cannot understand the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters, unless we receive it with a good and honest heart that comes with the humility of a disciple and a child. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you've shown us your love through your word. The blood of Christ that you have given for us is the blood of your written word. Forgive us, Lord, where we have stood over it. Enable us and help us, Lord Jesus, to humble ourselves and come under it. Would we lean not, Lord, on our own understanding, but instead would we trust you and would we allow the blood of Christ to make our paths straight. In your name we pray, amen.